Hi there, and welcome to this bonus episode of Finding Our Flavour, a chance to relive some of the tales and tastes, the recipes and reminiscences of our amazing Season 1 guests, people who really embody what it means to live in the hyphen between cultures. Hey everyone, I'm Rajesh Merchandani, food fan, broadcaster, story whisperer. I started finding our flavour because I want to know, how does the food we grow up with shape the people we grow up to be? And what role does our family's food play in our lives now, wherever and whatever those may be? That's an idea Dominican-American author Clavis Natera also explores in her stunning debut, Neruda on the Park, a vivid and mouth-watering novel about family and race and class and food and the sacrifices we make to save what we love. Here's how she tells it on Finding Our Flavor. My own journey has been, I would say it's been a tumultuous journey. You know, I arrived in the United States when I was 10 years old. Um, We lived with various family members until my mom was able to get an apartment um, for us to live all four siblings with her. Um, The only way, though, that we actually could afford an apartment was for her to work 24 hours a day as a home attendant. So one of the things that I always tell people about my own journey is that aside from being separated from my father, who was um, who stayed behind in the Dominican Republic when I was 10 years old, I was also separated from my mother. So, you know, the process of migration into the United States, I think what's really shocking for me and my siblings um, and storytelling and books became a really, really big part of my life. So there was, again, like this kind of um, shift from being yearning for my parents and looking forward to making phone calls to the Dominican Republic because the only way we could talk to our dad was through these phone centers they used to have in in migrant communities. I mean, most people didn't have phones back, you know, in the late 80s. Um, and, you know, for me, like crafting these stories and preparing to tell my father what it was like in New York City, what the winter was like, what snow was like, what trains were like, um, was really the preparation that I think ultimately led me to valuing words and valuing stories. So by the time that I got to college where I was like, I want to be a writer, you know, and I started taking like formal creative writing courses, um, I knew that I wanted to tell stories that were rooted in my community. You know, there, there's still a dearth of, of stories and especially stories that come out of the immigrant experience that portray us in what I think to be the truth of who we are as a community. What do you mean by that? Well, there's just like a lot of cliches, I think. You know, I mean, at least when I think about the way that women are portrayed as immigrants, there's this tendency to like portray especially Latinas and I'm an Afro Latina. So I think we're always either over sexualized or we're subservient to me, it became really important to tell a counter narrative. Food. I, I, when I read the book certainly seems to have a special place in the story of Neruda on the park, almost like a character. Uh, were you aware of that? Was that deliberate? Why was that? Yes, it was definitely so intentional. And I was so happy when you and I actually spoke about this book and um, how deeply you connected to this theme of food. Um, I wanted food to work in a few different ways in this dish. 
um, in this dish. I'm calling my book a dish now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, you know, I wanted it to work on different levels. Like the first level was, of course, to describe food in a way that brought any reader, whether you are someone of Dominican descent or a Latinx person who would be familiar with the flavors that I was describing or someone completely alien to them. I wanted to invite you into the descriptions of these meals so that you would want to eat them. And I am a big fan of food in my whole life, as you well know. <laughs> I, I consider myself a foodie. I love delicious food. Um, and I think there's nothing quite as, um, you know, just in my perspective, I think there's there are very little things in our lives that connect us to each other across language, across cultures, the way food does. And so for me, it was really one way to remind all readers that food is a celebration of culture. Food is a way in which we invite other people into our culture. And food can sometimes be a way in which we manipulate each other. So that's the, the the other way in which I wanted to use food. You know, Elsevia, who is one of my main characters, um, is just an artist. And for me, I also think that we don't often give credit to women who cook at home as the artists that they are. And Elsevia is able to disarm people with her meals. She's able to draw people and get them to consent to incredible things that happen in this book, largely because of what a good cook she is. Clavis is describing so much of what this show is about, food as an expression of our shared humanity. For Deb Freeman, food writing is a way to make sense of inhumanity. Through her articles and podcasts setting the table, Deb is revealing the real story of American cooking. Much of it is actually African-American cooking, perfected and passed down by people who are enslaved. About five years ago, um, I wrote an article about crab pickers. And crab pickers are women that um, picked blue crab, you know, they stood on their feet eight, 10 hours a day. And these are African-American women. Um, but yeah, so they stood there picking crab all day long. And with that money, they were able to purchase homes. They were able to uh, put their children through college. And so it just kind of snowballed from there because it was almost like a light bulb went off. It was, if this story exists, then what else is there? Well, you know, how's fried chicken come about? How does mac and cheese come about? And that kind of led me to James Hemings and being the chef de cuisine of America, yet being an enslaved person. And, you know, the more I wrote, the more I want to know and the more questions I have about other things. Could you briefly just tell us who James Hemings is for people who don't know? Absolutely. Uh, so James Hemings was enslaved by Thomas Jefferson. And when Thomas Jefferson was the ambassador of France and, and went over to France, he took James Hemings with him um, to stay French cooking. And so he went over there, became fluent in French and, you know, learned all of these techniques. And so, you know, when he comes back, Virginia as a whole, the cuisine becomes known as a half Virginia, half French style. So he was America's first uh, chef de cuisine, and um, we owe him a, a debt of gratitude, and I don't think people talk about him enough. If you just stop to actually think about who was doing the cooking for those first white Americans, it was only ever going to be enslaved people. So obviously, yes, like that cuisine that Jefferson brought back from France 
he didn't bring it back. James Hemings brought it back. And the idea that like barbecue, which everyone associates with America, who are the pitmasters? It was enslaved people and we don't even know their names anymore. Yeah, there are these early pitmasters and you know, there I'm sure there's so many others that you just said, like, you know, that we don't know their names, but you know, the ones that we do know, we need to speak their names because Again, otherwise, no one's going to know about it. No one's going to talk about it. And so if we're going to celebrate barbecue as this American tradition, as this thing that's, you know, I was in I was in Paris a few weeks ago and, and there was a barbecue restaurant, which I'm just like, really, what are y'all doing over here? But <laughs> like, what is going on? But they're doing American barbecue. And I won't speak to whether or not it was good or bad. I'll leave that alone. <laughs> But but what I will say is that that's African-Americans. That's that's black people in America. And um, and so there is a debt that needs to be paid. There needs there's an acknowledgement that needs to be had about these people who created, you know, a global, honestly, a global thing. Um, and, and we don't talk about it enough. And that's that's why. I do the podcast. That's why I write these articles. That's why I tell it to pretty much everyone I see, you know, when the 4th of July comes around and you have your barbecue, well, you know, there's somebody that you have to thank for that. Deb says she's trying to find a connection to her ancestors through food. It's why on the podcast, she chooses to share the recipe for her beloved Nana's collard greens. And if you've heard the show, you'll have heard me try my hand at my guests' recipes. It's a way of understanding them more and getting to try their yummy food. Sometimes I even call them up mid-recipe. Hey! I thought I would check in with you, just so you can course correct me if I'm making some terrible mistakes. Okay. (laughs) First thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna show you the fat back. That's been, um, it's been simmering now for about, actually about an hour and a half. Oh yeah, that looks great. If it's been going for about an hour and a half, I think it's safe to add greens now. So I've got a nice sort of bunch okay. of leaves here. Now I would just chop, exactly, so I would just chop that one, exactly. Yeah, a couple of inches long each, like the ribbons. Yeah, that's how I cut mine. Okay, and then uh, I've got my potatoes there. Oh, beautiful. Okay, great. And then red pepper flakes and apple cider vinegar, that's it. It's going to go in the pot. And then... Okay, but that's it. Yes. I would start checking um, in about an hour or so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you need a lot of patience for this dish, don't you? You do. You do. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have somewhere to go if you're making this. Let me tell you, the collard greens were definitely worth the wait. When Imtiaz Tayab first tried the recipe he shared on the show, he also couldn't go anywhere. But that was because of the pandemic lockdown. The CBS News foreign correspondent grew up in Canada of Pakistani heritage, but his special dish was Italian, and he learned to make it in London. Confused? Yeah, I was too. The dish is pasta alla puttanesca, a heady mix of anchovies and olives and chilli. It's the dish that got him into cooking, And it was the chilli in the dish that evoked his mother's South Asian cooking that the pandemic stopped him enjoying. See, it does make sense. He says he's become pretty adept at different cuisines now, but there's nothing like making the food he grew up with. Don't get me wrong, I love Italian food and I love Thai food and I love, you know, Korean food and and all of the varieties of these flavours. I mean, I am a foodie full stop, but there's just something about South Asian food that 
own, that speaks to me, not just in a, this is delicious kind of way, but in a, this is also part of who I am kind of way. Um, it's infused not only with what I like to eat, but just sort of how I feel and the comfort uh, that I feel when I have these flavors is unlike anything I have uh, with any other sort of food. It's not only a joy for me to be able to eat, it's also been a joy for me to share. Um, you know, what I, I, you know, I'm the youngest of five, right? So I have four older brothers. And one of the things that I always said to my mom as I got older was like, aren't you sick of cooking for us? Like, aren't you tired of coming home every night and having to cook for like your five kids and your husband and yourself? And she was like, no, I actually kind of like it. And, and I always thought it was a chore until I started cooking for people. And there is nothing greater than cooking for people. There's nothing yeah. greater than feeding people. There's nothing greater than, than, you know, taking some time out of your day and creating something that people are going to love and that's going to nourish them um, and hopefully fill their soul a little bit. And that is also one of the things that I've kind of learned in this pandemic. And also now that I can be with people and sit at a table with people is how important that connection is. And that my actual connection with food is one thing. And, you know, my greediness with food as well, but more <laughs> importantly, it is the, the act of not only um, making food for people, but sharing that food with them, which I think is such a beautiful, extraordinary thing. Is it different when you're making and sharing South Asian food with people than when you're making and sharing other yeah, types of cuisine? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Why is that? Yeah. What, I, what's I, different about it for you? What And why is that? I think because for the people who are eating it more often than not, it's not their food. It's not their love language on a plate. It is new to them or, or different to them. But more importantly, I think what it is, it's because I'm giving a part of myself here, right? This is the flavors of my mother. This is the flavor of her mother's kitchen and probably her mother's kitchen. And so it is, there's an intimacy with, making Pakistani food for my friends that there isn't when I try to, you know, make pasta la puttanesca, which they also love. <laughs> but, you know, there there is a real intimacy with me serving the food that I grew up with and then enjoying it. Um, exactly and there's a, the and there's, there's a vulnerability to it as well. What if they don't like it? Yeah, I'm exactly <laughs> the same. I feel like, I, I'm, I, I mean, they're not judging me, but I think mm. I'm judging myself more harshly when I'm putting Indian food in front of my friends versus yeah. putting something else, a different type of cuisine in front of my friends. I'm giving part of myself yeah. to them as well. Well, and, and, and like I said, you're giving part of yourself, but you're also giving a part of your mother who presumably taught you how to cook and, and her mother and her mother and just this generation of knowledge which has been passed on through millions of mothers uh, to their children. Uh, and I think that's just a really beautiful thing. And again, now that we're, we're in a place where we can sit around dinner tables again, um, I think the fact that I can now feed people, which is a skill I did not have just two years ago, uh, is a pretty wonderful thing. Um, and it's really something I'm really sort of, yeah, reveling in. Now, unlike Imtiaz, Bobby Friction, a pioneering British-Asian DJ, admits on Finding Our Flavour that he rejected the food he grew up with because of the environment he grew up in. Our conversation delves into some pretty dark memories. I was famous in my family for not eating 
chili food. Uh, and now realize looking back, it wasn't just chili food. That was my catch-all term for anything that's Indian food. So, I mean, I'm disgusted at myself now, but we would go to India. I'd have to eat the food there. There were no takeouts or there was no Western food. So when we went out to India, she'd have to wash, like I'd eat chicken. She'd wash the chicken under a tap because I needed all elements of South Asianness taken off it. Oh, oh what do you mean? Wash the, wash the spices off? Yeah, the, oh. the spices and the sauce off. So I was just left with chicken. Oh, why do you think that was? Why did you just not like it? Or was it kind of like saying, oh, no, I want to grow up English because that's where we live. I want to be like my friends. I told myself that I was a child. I mean, this is single digits. I don't like chilies. And I have no doubt now that I'm unpicking my my childhood, that a lot of it had to do with some some subconscious hate uh, of my culture. And I think it manifested itself in hating the food. Hate is a very strong word to use. It's, uh, um, I mean, uh, we experienced, I experienced a lot of hate um, in single digits, you know, from the racial slurs of nursery. This is not senior school. From uh, and I, I've been talking about this a lot recently because it's something I think I buried. Um, I've for years been saying I grew up in a very racist Britain. What's come from me unpicking it is that I had buried all the adults that were massively racist to me as a child because I think as a child you just it's too much for you to take in. So it's only the, over the last couple of years. I've been able to pinpoint incidences where I was shouted at in the street when a bunch of men chased me. Men, you know, I'm six years old. Uh, and one that only came to me three weeks ago, which I'd totally forgotten about and, and buried, was I was in a park. And I remember um, there weren't men, but they were definitely 19 and 20, so young men. And um, I got headbutted by one of them and called the P word. Uh, and I was only eight at the time. so. Um, I use the word hate because I was subjected to hate. Um, and maybe this is another podcast. The racism of the 1970s towards brown people, South Asian people, people like you, people like me, I think needs we need to go back and reread it and deconstruct it and think about it again. Because I think as a community, we've gone, it was really racist, but it's better now. Yeah. Or it was really racist and it's getting bad again. I think... A lot of white people, unlike possibly in America or other places where you actually have the racism formalized, you know, filmed loads, slavery's talked about. I think a lot of white people in Britain who aren't racist at, at, at all as adults uh, have completely forgotten just how racist they were as kids. You know, it's really interesting hearing you talk about that because I think the same thing. Like I remember being in like senior school first year, high school, Americans will call it, and like being stopped in the corridor while everyone else is walking past by these two kids, like one's got his head shaped, skinhead, we called them then. And they're standing there and they won't let me go. They're like years older than me until I sing the British national anthem, which is insane. And so I stood there and I sang the British national anthem really quietly and really nervously. And I was terrified, of course, until 
a young woman who was like four years above me came past and she was not taking any of this nonsense from these guys. And she basically told them to get lost in no uncertain terms. And they left me alone. And then like years after, you know, we still had a bond years after that because I thought, okay, you came to my, my rescue. Thank you very much. But do you think that you, you talked about like it being much more in the open in the US? I mean, yes, it is. But also what the last couple of years since George Floyd has shown us, I think is that it's much more deep seated than that. It's so much more institutionalized. And there's a whole universe of microaggressions, particularly towards black people in America. And now we're talking about them more. And that's why many people are saying, oh, we just keep going on about this stuff. There's not that much racism. There is. I mean, I think it's still very much deep seated. And I wonder if it's still, if you think it's, I mean, it's it's almost 10 years since I left the the UK. I'm wondering if you think it's as deep seated in the UK now still. Anecdotally, obviously, I would say for 90% of us, it's gotten loads worse over the wow. last 10 years. Am I getting chased in the street? No. Has street racism gone up? Yes. Am I being headbutted at the age of eight by 20-year-olds? No. And I don't think these days the average racist, racist would headbutt an eight-year-old. I mean, that's just bonkers. When I look back on that happening to me, I just think it's crazy, all right? Because yeah. I, was, I was only eight years old. But um, that whole situation, that the, uh, what, whether you want to call it the Tea Party right, the, tr- the, uh, the Trump followers, the MAGA people over in Britain, uh, not Brexit supporters, but the extreme Brexit supporters, there's this belief that um, their countries are going to die soon, that they're getting replaced. You know, all this real far right stuff about replacement theory. It's pretty mainstream in Britain. There's none of this. You'll only find it on the internet. You can go into any pub and within a couple of minutes, if you're brave enough, someone will start saying really nicely, oh, look, mate, you know, it's not against you. And obviously, I love you, but, you know, it's like it's not our country anymore, right? The thing I found making this show is that our conversations start with one dish and then they can go anywhere. And they're a reminder that the immigrant experience can be disturbing and difficult just as it can be rich and rewarding. I'm glad to say that now Bobby is in full appreciation of his culture's food. He not only sent me the recipe for his favourite dish prepared by his mum, but he actually recorded his mother making it for the show. It's one way he's trying to preserve his family's food for the future. And that's something I'm trying to do by sharing my mum's amazing Indian recipes on the show website, findingourflavour.com. Another guest, Indian-American author Madhushri Ghosh, revisits some of her family's dishes in her memoir, Kabar, An Immigrant Journey of Food, Memory and Family, as she also explains to me. I think food has a prominent role in everybody's story, especially immigrants. You know, we're looking for anything that reminds us of home. And so our journey, our story of belonging is crucial in how we identify with whatever food there is um, around us. So in America, my memoir is really about where do I belong and is it okay for us? Do we have the permission to belong not only from where we come from, the country of birth, but do we belong in the country of choice? Mm. So that is what is important not only in my memoir, but I feel in every memoir, you're you're questioning your place in life, your place in society, your place in history. 
and uh, food for me will always be important. Um, and that's why in this book, I wanted to highlight Bengali food because Bengali food is where I come from. But I identify with Bengali food even more so since my parents died because I am here and so my parents are too. So this is a love story. It's a love letter to my parents. It's a love letter to the country I left. It's a love letter to the country I'm in. You know, this show is, it, it, it's based on the t- a premise that is the food we grew up with as immigrants mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. people who identify with diaspora communities. The food we grew up with reminds us of where we came from, which is what you're talking about. But I think it helps us figure out who we are. Mm-hmm. And it's the point you were making about it asking whether you can belong yeah. in this country that you came to. How does the food you grew up with help you belong here? You know, the stereotypes of what immigrants should look like, should behave like. We are the model minority. Are we really the model minority or not? Um, and how do we belong? And my question, I've always questioned that as to what can we be? And do we really need to ask whether we belong or not? Why do I have that question and someone who was brought up here does not? I am someone who is actively working in this environment. I am contributing to this society. I am a social activist about women in science. I am a writer. I am a this, I am a that. Why do I have to list all these things in order to belong? I I should just be. And so uh, when you're looking at food, how do I belong with the food that I make. People think San Diego is surf, turf, beach, but we have an active, active, active uh, urban farming community. And uh, during the pandemic, uh, I was home. I was, before that I used to travel over 50% of the time and I was home. So I was getting to know my neighborhood. I was getting to know my farmers and they were working. They were essential workers. They were working. They were bringing food to our doors while we were sitting at home, right? And so I wanted to do something about that. And uh, I had all these greens from uh, my farming community. And uh, when I would take them back home, I would cook. And invariably, I would make something that my mother would make. Bengali food out of greens that my American urban farmers grew. So it became a full circle. I would make that and I would give it to them to eat. And um, that's how I belong. I was really lucky that not only did Madhushri share a pretty simple coconut dessert called Nauru, but she actually came over and we made it together. What a treat in these virtual days. Switch it on. All we're trying to do is toast the coconut because now the coconut oils will come out. Look at me. I'm not using my fingers. Oh, you would normally use your fingers in the pot? Who cares? Oh, yeah. Well, don't you, aren't you worried about burning your fingers? A skinny cook and a cook without burnt fingers is not to be trusted. <laughs> but you got to smell it, though. Oh, yeah, the coconut is starting to toast. Yeah. Um, What we're going to do is add a little bit of condensed milk and stop, and then we'll see. And then because it's heated up, you hear the sound, so you want to get it, take it off the fire and keep stirring so it becomes 
kind of sort of goop but not really too much all we will have to do after that is make the balls i have to say you know usually for the podcast mm. is that i get my guests to send me the recipe and i make the recipe mm-hmm. but really you've done all the work <laughs> and i'm not complaining <laughs> you should not this is most of us cook or or make things because that's an expression of love food is love food is love but also you don't go around saying i love you you don't it's like like if i said that to my mother she she like what what is wrong with you like what do you want she it would be treated with a lot of suspicion <laughs> so but now if i made her all this yeah madhushri describes herself as a daughter of refugees a scientist social activist immigrant and cook someone else with multiple hyphens is malika garib Filipino-Egyptian-American. She writes and broadcasts for NPR. She's a cartoonist, a graphic novelist, a memoirist, and like you and me, a food fan. The family recipe she shares really mixes influences. Roast Cornish hens, Filipino style, marinated in lemon and soy sauce. It's delicious. Malika has really embraced being a glorious cultural composite. But as a child, she says she was encouraged to suppress the Filipino and Egyptian parts of her identity in order to succeed in later life. It was a race for who could be the most American. And so in college, I, I had entered a predominantly white university. And oh my gosh, I did so much observing, observing how, how, what, how people ate with a fork and a knife, how they introduced themselves very confidently. Hi! You know, I'm Courtney. How are you? Um, and it's it was the opposite of how I was, I, what I'd known in Filipino or, or Arab culture. In Filipino culture, you're very deferential to, to elderly people or strangers or guests. Um, you're overly like wel- you know, like welcoming, like oh, like you, you're you're you, you're one step lower than like the guests always, right? Hmm. Um, and this sort of just butt against. All, everything that I was raised with, yet I tried to earnestly learn because my uncle had told me, when you graduate, it's going to be a white world out there. Wow. And he was right. I moved to Washington, D.C. and um, was very thankful for all that I had observed in college about how to be in a majority white space, how to present yourself when invited to a work dinner or function, uh, mm-hmm. for how to... Um, just the rules of society I had like learned from college. Right. And then in my twenties, I, you know, as I was going into my life and settling in, I had married um, a white partner. Uh, I had made friends with all white people. Mm -hmm. I met this guy once. Um, He's Filipino American. And he started talking to me about like Philip, the Philippines colonial history. And have I ever thought about the fact that like, the whole life that I had built for myself was through a colonial lens. And I was like, no, I never thought about that. I've just, you know, tried to like fit in where I can. And the more we talked, he basically decolonized me. And I had this whole (laughs) entire, (laughs) he gave me all these books and resources about like Filipino people. And did you know that our people were colonized for hundreds of years? And that's why you want to be this certain way. And I was like, I sort of had this like, moment where if it was like a film it was like every like 
memory that like just was starting to pop up was like, oh, that's why my uncle said this. And this is why my mom wanted me to wear those types of clothes and send me to the school and like all this grooming, like it just sort of came to a head. And I was like, wow, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to make friends with other Filipino people. I want to make friends with other Egyptian people. I want to, I want to reclaim my culture. And then all the stuff started happening. I took Arab Arabic classes at the embassy of Oman I joined the Filipino-American uh, professionals uh, organization in, in Washington. I um, immediately started hosting these Filipino potluck nights at my house. Like, just I just went all in, just jumped right in. There's so much here. I want to unpick a little bit. When I grew up in England, you know, I was first-generation Indian. Uh, my parents wanted us to fit in. Mm -hmm. So they would talk to us in English, even though they would talk to the, each other in Indian languages, in Hindi and Sindhi at home. They would cook us Indian food, but then they would also cook us English food some days. We didn't have the hybrid food. Mm. And then you called it, your parents were grooming you, which was a really interesting word. Because I wonder if they were protecting you. They probably were. I remember one time my dad told me that um, he noticed that the other kids at the preschool, when they were put in front of the TV, they were uh, reciting all the lines, the Disney movies and the Disney shows. And he worried that because I wasn't doing that, that I would be somehow like less American or my English wouldn't be as good as theirs. And you would suffer in later life. Because and I would have suffered later in life. Yeah. So they were sort of, they wanted me to be super Egyptian Filipino, but never seemed to prioritize that. They really prioritized me sort of being an American in quotes so that I could fit in in quotes and succeed in life. In quotes. But I kind of think that America does this thing really well where it, it encourages people to be whatever ethnicity they grew up with and they come from whatever community they come from, but it sort of supplants that with being American. So you are American Filipino. You are American whatever. It, that's absolutely correct. But in practice, it's very hard for people to truly believe that they are American by the very nature of their existence and still a 100% Filipino, 100% Egyptian person. Now I know, after writing a book about it and uh -huh. spending four years thinking and reflecting about it and doing the emotional labor to understand and unpack why I believed what I believed, now I know that when I say I'm American too, this, my experience as a Filipino-Egyptian-American in America is completely as valid as any other Americans. I 100% believe that. Hearing you, you know, you've arrived at a place now, and yes, it took you four years of writing two books to do it, and going all in on, you know, embracing your culture. You seem to have arrived at a place where you are, you've found your flavor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I have found my flavor. That feels like a pretty good place to end, doesn't it? Thank you to all my guests for sharing cherished family recipes and your food stories. It just underlines how food is a great connector and that everyone has a food story to tell. If you've enjoyed Finding Our Flavour, please, please go to your podcast platform and leave me a great review. Post about the show on your social and tell all your friends to subscribe. Thanks to Paul Blake, Maria Byrne, Revent, Danessa Franklin, and so many other people who helped along the way. This music is Leaving Dakar by Matthias Muller. 
I'm Rajesh Merchandani, and thank you for listening. Thank you.